0: I'm glad that Gene's putting some of his stuff on the the internet. He shared with me a link when we when I was teaching him that it's some songs that his son had uploaded, and I've listened to those a bunch of times, especially the Potter one. That's one of my favorites. So that's one to do at Pineville when you finally get to come. We're gonna we're gonna do that one. Uh, we are continuing through the Book of Nehemiah. So go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter five, and um you know. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare for tonight's word, all right? Lord, we're just so grateful for just the blessing of the fact that you are involved in our lives. and Lord, even when uh, there are twists and turns that we don't expect, God, you are right there in the midst of it. And you can do truly exceedingly beyond what we could ask or imagine, even in the midst of darkness. Lord, I'm thankful for Gene. I'm thankful for the witness that you gave him in the prison and now outside. And I pray, Lord, that you would expand that in the years to come, that he would be able to touch many lives for you. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being with him tonight. And we pray, Lord, that as we turn our attention to your word, that you would direct our hearts and our truths and our passions and our minds to exactly what you want us to hear for your purposes tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. You know I hate knots. If there's a knot in a shoelace, or a knot in a rope, or a knot in anything, I just hate them. They drive me crazy. And admittedly, I just don't even try with them. When I was a kid, I'd take them to my mom. She was a coach. She could get out knots. Once Rebecca and I got married, I take my knots to Rebecca. Here, can you do this? I don't even mess with it. I just hate them. I get distracted by them. And so whenever I can't. Untie a knot, I just get frustrated and I want to get the knot out. And I'll just go buy a new rope or a new pair of shoelaces if it can't get out. But some years ago, I was challenged by a statement that says this. Rebuilders never cut what they can untie. Every church is going to encounter some knots of conflict. You can bet on it, but rebuilders never cut what they can untie. Rebuilders will take the time to untie the knot and bring problems to resolution. So tonight we're going to look at Nehemiah 5 and see what this principle means and how it plays out. And if you've been here the other services, we're skipping chapter 4, so let me summarize what happened there. In chapter 4, Nehemiah had to deal with conflict from outside the city. There were two non-Israelites named Sanballat and Tobiah who tried to destroy the work of rebuilding in Jerusalem. And thankfully they failed, but they continue to be a problem for Nehemiah throughout the book. But with confidence and determination, Nehemiah helped his followers press on in their work. And they did in a wonderful way. In spite of the conflict that was coming from outside the camp and outside the city, they continued to build. We might even say that chapter 4 ends on a, a note of victory. The work is progressing. But unfortunately, as we begin to read chapter 5, we encounter defeat. We see a great change take place in the rebuilders where they once were unified. Now they are divided. Sam Ballot and Tobiah, they're silent. The opposition from without is not even mentioned in chapter 5. But what we do find are complaints and Groans and gripes and knotted up conflict from within the group of builders. And so that's why I've entitled this message, Can't We All Just Get Along? I want you to notice something else as we encounter chapter 5, as we go through it. Not one brick is laid in chapter 5. Not one. In chapter 4, even with all that conflict from outside, Bricks still got laid. The work of rebuilding continued. But in chapter 5, when the conflict comes from within, the work comes to a screeching halt. Everyone is knotted up and the knot is getting tighter and that should warn us. And you know this conflict inside the church is worse than anything that could be thrown at us from outside the church. So let's encounter the story together. Look at verses 1 through 5. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. And still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though your sons are as our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And that was the beginning of the night. Let's consider how this situation got started. Remember that the Jews were rebuilding the wall when the nation was in crisis mode. Uh, They were in a recession, if not a depression. And there was no economic stimulus package. There was no welfare. There was no unemployment. There were no tax breaks. And still, with even without all of that, some people were benefiting from the economic downturn, while most everyone else lost everything. The crisis had allowed some of the rich to catch a few on the way down. And it caused the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer. In an already tough economic climate, the rebuilding of the wall seems to have been the final blow to the economics of most people in society. And this blow didn't come because of the wall wall itself, but because of the climate that was created by the rebuilding of the wall. You see, the focus of everyone in the 52 days in which the wall was being built was to rebuild the wall. And so while everybody was working on one task, the consequential problem developed that the wall was being built to the detriment of everything else. The laborers were not in the field. They were working on the wall. Individual families were not uh, able to produce what they needed because they were working on the wall. And so this shouldn't have been a problem. Uh, Nehemiah probably felt that just as everyone shared the workload of the wall. That they should share the resources that they had while they worked on the wall. And this way, the more fortunate could help the less fortunate and everyone could get the job done and then they could move on with their lives. But that's not what happened. Instead, the more fortunate decided to catch a few on the way down and profit from the situation. And so, as the economic conditions of the poor crumbled, the economic condition of the rich dramatically improved and the situation went something like this. The poor would say, We need grain. So the rich said, well, I have some grain, and I'll sell it to you for 30% interest. I don't know what the interest rate was, but they were exacting usury on the people. It was exorbitant. And so they got sucked into the plot. And so what happened in a few weeks then, when they were out of that grain? Well, they had to go back to the rich. And so the poor say, sir, I know I borrowed some grain from you a couple weeks ago, but I need need some more because my family is hungry. And so the rich says, that's fine, I'll... I'll give you some grain. What can you give me? And the poor says, well, I, I don't have any money. I already owe you all of this plus interest. Um, all I have is my home and my land. You can have that if I could have some grain. The rich says, oh, that'll work. Yeah, just give me that. Here's your, here's your grain, mortgage your land and, and your vineyard, and I'll give you that grain. But then it came from for tax season. And now the king wants his money, and the poor don't have any money to pay the king's taxes. So what do the poor do? They go to the rich again, and they say, I need money now to pay the king. And so the rich says, well, man, you're in great debt to me. You already owe me this money for the grain. You also uh, have already given me your land. What else do you have that you can give me? Do you have a son or a daughter or something that could become my slave? Well, sure, I do have that. So they're selling their kids. It was a desperate situation. The labor on the wall was volunteer labor. And so as people volunteered, they couldn't take care of their own business. And so... They didn't have grain because they couldn't grow grain. So they had to buy grain, but they couldn't buy grain because they didn't have money because they weren't growing grain. And so it was just a vicious cycle. And so they ended up going to the rich. The rich took advantage of them. And the cycle just got worse and worse and worse until there was a knot. So big that the work on the wall comes to a screeching Halt! And all around the two-mile city wall, people are arguing about what's going on. They're shouting at each other. They're crying. They're fuming. And not one brick is laid. Disunity from within will stop even the best progress for God every single time. Even when you have all the vision for the great work even when you have all the resources you need to accomplish that great work, even when you have all the authority to accomplish that work, even when you're halfway through the task, even then, disunity can stop you dead in your tracks. and Disunity can stop the progress of any church of any size in any location with any pastor with any membership. Any church can get knotted up. The question is, will the people cut the knot or will they work to untie it? So I want to offer here a first principle for rebuilding, and that is conflict is inevitable. It is. We should never think that conflict is not going to come to us or to our church. Anytime people get together, there's going to be conflict. We all have different opinions. We all have different tastes. And and when those tastes are challenged or those preferences are challenged or those opinions are challenged, there will be conflict. Even the most loving relationships have conflict. I mean, you love your spouse, so you never have conflict, right? Never. Of course you do. You love your kids. You never have conflict with your kids, huh? Uh, yeah. <laughs> of course you do. Conflict is inevitable. I've heard I'm sure you've heard this story about the guy who was stranded on a desert island and um, he was there for a number of years all by himself. He had a pretty good life. He had a he even had a church there. And when some people came to rescue him, they uh, they saw that there were three buildings there on the island. And they said, well, what are what are what are these buildings? And he said, well, this here's my house. And they said, well, that's that's neat. You had that. And he said, what's that? Other? And he said, well, that's my church. And Oh, good. You got to worship there by yourself? Sure. Yeah, it was good. And he said, well, what's that third building? Well, that's the church I used to go to. You know? Glory. Glory. (laughs) In 11 years at Pineville, (laughs) in 11 years at Pineville, we've had two seasons of conflict that really rose to a level that... um, the deacons had to deal with it. I was telling one of our my prayer warriors at the church, I said, I'm sharing at Forsberg about the two seasons of conflict we've had at the church. And, and she said, well, there's been other conflict. It just didn't involve you. <laughs> and I said, well, that's true. But but these two got to the point where the deacons had to, to get involved. And they both stressed me out immensely, especially the second, because it was very, very personal, and either one could have erupted into something uh, far more de- devastated than it ended up being, and the second one almost did. Uh, but thankfully, through the prog- protective grace of, of God and good leadership, especially by our deacons, uh, we were able to circle the wagons and prevent too much harm other than what had happened initially. There was still harm and hurt. There's been other little minor conflicts that that didn't rise to that level. And through the years, we've lost five or six families uh, directly due to some kind of conflict issue. And every one of those has been painful. I mean, I could name their names because I still think about them. And it, it breaks my heart that it kind of came to that. It was hurtful to lose the families we lost. It was hurtful in ministry that slowed down due to our leadership being focused elsewhere Instead of on the task at hand. Conflict is inevitable. Uh, Ministry is imperfect people doing ministry. With and to imperfect people. Uh, There's no perfect group of people. There's no perfect pastor. There's no perfect church. There's no perfect family. There's no perfect organization. We are still prone to sin and selfishness. And Satan will see That we have temptation dangling in our faces. And he wants to take us out. When there is no conflict, Satan will try to create some. That will often come at times when God is doing a great work. In fact, it's interesting to me, looking back, those two seasons of the most intense conflict that we've seen were also times when we were experiencing God doing some amazing things in our church. There was some great growth coming or a great movement coming. And man, bam. One time out of left field, the other time more or less out of left field. And you know it's, the, it's Satan when it's coming out of left field. And that's just what happened here in Jerusalem. Conflict raises its ugly head in the midst of a great work of God. And Nehemiah sees the conflict and it's hard to miss. He hears the complaints of the less fortunate. And what does he do? Well, look at verse six. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. This is the second principle of conflict, and that is conflict should sadden, even anger us. You know, it's okay to be angry about the right things. Nehemiah is ticked. This is holy anger. It's a right placed anger. And Nehemiah should be ticked because the rich people in town are being ridiculous. And Nehemiah is angry for a number of reasons. First, Nehemiah is angry because of sin that's in the camp, because what the rich are doing is flat wrong. He knew his people were doing something in diametric opposition to the plain teaching of Scripture found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. This kind of thing was not to be done. And so Nehemiah became angry because the people knowingly and blatantly were disobeying God's clear teaching. Conflict in the church often occurs because people are not doing what God has said they should do. Sometimes conflict comes because... People don't handle matters as Scripture indicates. Maybe there's a matter of church discipline that needs to be addressed and it's not addressed. Or maybe there's a way, there, there is a way in Matthew of how do you go to a brother who's offended you, you know, one-on-one, then two-on-one. And then if they don't listen to that, then you go to a larger and you keep working up. Sometimes they don't follow that. Or instead of following the proper channels to voice a a complaint, someone or a group simply stirs up trouble by complaining to everyone around. Or instead of going along with the majority in the church, an individual or a group pushes for their agenda in spite of what the church has decided. And when we act in ways that are not in keeping with Scripture, we're being sinful. And this conflict should sadden us because we're hurting the cause of Christ. But Nehemiah is also angry for another reason. Because these ungodly actions of the rich are bringing reproach on God's name. Remember back in chapter 2 when Nehemiah challenged to rebuild the wall, he said we need to rebuild it so that we will no longer be a disgrace. Because Nehemiah was concerned about the, the fame and the name of God. And so Nehemiah realizes that the Gentiles outside the city are noticing the ungodly action of the rich. And, and he says this in verse nine, he says, so I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Nehemiah can't turn a blind eye. He is angered that God's name is not being honored Especially before a watching pagan world. We forget that the world is watching us. And I know the news media smears churches with bad press. And and people are so skeptical. And they call us hypocrites. But you know, one reason that they're skeptical and one reason that they call us hypocrites is because we're so ungodly sometimes. Instead of pointing them to Christ, we Christians sometimes end up pointing them away from God. The world is watching us. And when if we bring honor to God, then they will honor God. But when we bring reproach to the name of God, people turn away. This is why conflict can't be ignored. Nehemiah doesn't ignore it. He gets angry about it. But notice how Nehemiah handles his anger in verse 7. He says, I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And then he talks to them. And this is the next development of the of the principles. And that is we must get a handle on ourselves before we can get a handle on conflict. Nehemiah is angry. But he's smart enough to know that he is in no position to handle the conflict right now. He doesn't go off half-cocked. He ponders the situation. And I'm sure since it's been his pattern, Nehemiah prays about things. And I've prayed that kind of prayer before. It begins with a bit of fuming and fist-pumping and I'm mad. And then it finally settles down with you on your knees, submitting to God. Before you can ever handle conflict effectively, you have to get a handle on yourself. W.A. Criswell, who was a long pastor at First Baptist Dallas, has a guidebook for pastors he wrote years and years ago. And he makes a statement in there that pastors must watch their tempers because more harm can be done in a 30-second fit than good done in 30 years of ministry. And it goes the same for all of us. When we pitch a fit... We lose a lot of respect with those around us. Have you ever been tempted to write a letter or an email in anger? Perhaps you did. (laughs) The results really weren't that good. I've had people tell me that they received an angry email or a letter before and that one action caused them to be so hurt that they resigned a position or they pulled back a gift that they were going to make to a church or ministry, or simply lost all respect for the person who sent them that. One former denominational executive told me, he said, Stuart, the meanest letter I ever received was from a pastor at First Baptist Church, Pineville, Louisiana. Is that email or letter really what you want to be remembered by 20 or 30 years later? In church, we can't just pop off. We don't have the right to be mean. We don't have the right to be ugly. We must get a handle on ourselves before we can handle conflict. You you seldom hit the target when you shoot from the hip. One statement said in An anger can do irreparable damage. Yet once we get a handle on ourselves, then we can move on into what's the fourth principle. And that is conflict must be dealt with. Verses 7 through 11, Nehemiah starts to deal with the With the issue. He tells them what to do. Like in verse 11. He says give back to them immediately. Their fields, vineyards, olive groves, houses. And also the usury. You're charging them. The hundredth part of the money. Grain, new wine and oil. Conflict cannot be ignored. Nehemiah knows this is a is no little issue. It's a cancer. If it's not dealt with. Then it will destroy the body. So Nehemiah shuts everything down. As if it wasn't shutting down anyway. And he tells them. To give it back. Can you just imagine the room when he pulled everybody together? There's never been that bad a business meeting in any Baptist church. Everyone's fuming. The knot's there. They're red-faced. And Nehemiah says, we're going to deal with this now. And here's what we're going to do. And everybody, yes, sir. Nehemiah deals with the conflict. Conflict can't be swept under the carpet because you'll eventually trip over it. Churches die because they do not deal with conflict. They don't deal with issues. It's been said that in a church quarrel, the devil remains neutral and supplies ammunition to both sides. He says, Y'all go. Cheers, us on. When knots come to many churches, some people just cut the knot. That's when a split happens or or the church unjustly fires a staff member or people stop giving or whatever other thing they choose. They just cut the knot. And when the knot is cut, then many people think, well, we've dealt with the problem now. Good riddance. They're gone. But then they look around and they realize that a chunk of the body of Christ is gone. An arm has been cut off or a foot has been crushed. And it takes years to recover from those Lobbed off knots. Conflict must be dealt with. But there's a right way and a wrong way to handle conflict. And I think that we can glean some principles about dealing with conflict from Nehemiah's actions here. One is have as your goal unity and restoration. Nehemiah pulls no punches. In pointing out the wrong these men are doing, however, he doesn't scold them and tell them to get out. He says, this is not right, but you can fix this, and here is how. And he calls them to fix it. Nehemiah wants people to be unified again. He knows that they must be unified in order to be effective. And so his goal is to bring them all together once again. Next, we have to lead by example. If you look at verses 14 through 19, you see a later insert As Nehemiah is writing these events sometime later, he lets us know that he set the example for everyone. Since the city was in such disrepair and in in the economy in such peril, he did not even take everything that was allotted to him. Nehemiah gave up what was rightly his to help the poor in the way they needed. He was leading by example. Had everyone done that, the conflict never would have occurred. Oh, that's okay. That's normal. Next, state the problem. The issue needs to be laid out. Nehemiah states the problem. He says, this is not right. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't make a non-issue the issue. He goes straight to the real problem. And then he says, hold up the word of God. Nehemiah shows the nobles that they are living, not living according to God's word, that the word of God is our standard. And if we're not in line with it, then we need correction. So now you don't march into a business meeting and start the Bible. People are going to have their walls up and get all mad. But you lovingly lead the conflicting people to biblical principles. Next, you propose a plan for conflict resolution. Nehemiah says, you can fix this problem easy by just giving back what you've taken. He encourages them to do that. And when dealing with conflict, we need to help people know how to get out of the mess they're in. Sometimes people remain in conflict because they simply can't see the way out when it may be absolutely obvious to someone else. And then finally, you have to allow for response we don't walk in and, and give a browbeat and walk out. If our goal is unity and restoration, then we need to allow for a response. Nehemiah tells the men what to do and then waits for their response. Conflict can be handled in an appropriate way. The end result does not have to be with everyone leaving a meeting mad because rebuilders don't cut what they can't untie. Now, is it easy? No. <laughs> it's hard hard. There's one final principle that we need to employ and that so many churches don't ever get to enjoy because they don't handle conflict effectively, and that is the resolution of the conflict should be celebrated. Look at verses 12 to 13. We will give it back, they said, and we will do not demand anything from them. We will do as you say. And then I summoned the priest and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said in this way may God shake out of his house and position, possessions every man who does not keep his promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. And at this the whole assembly said amen and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Now doesn't that beat all? This conflict ends with a glorious worship service. When was the last time you attended a bad business meeting that ended with everyone bowing down and praising the Lord at the end? It just doesn't really happen. But it should. Even after the last number with the shouts louder than ever, we see all of these things coming together. And that's why we've got to pay close attention to this. Because... When conflict is resolved, it is a glorious thing, especially if you can maintain relationships through the conflict. When we work to untie the knot and we see the victory of having it untied, we should celebrate. One day, all of us are going to have to give an account before the senior pastor of every church the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I think there's going to be a day where I have to go and he says, Stuart, Forrestburg from 2003 to 2008 was under your charge. Give an accounting of this. He's going to come to Tim and he's going to say, give an accounting of this. But you know what he's also going to do? He's going to come to y'all. He's going to say, you have to give an accounting of how you were a part Of that body of Christ or whatever body of Christ you are. How you have led and how you have served the Lord. And my prayer is that all of us will be able to hear the Lord say, well done. Even if we failed him at some point along the way, when he looks back over the history of everything that we've done, he'll be able to say, well done. As we prepare for this time of invitation tonight, I felt led to do something that we did in the very first month in Pineville. And I told you all, most of you all have been here, but, you know, the church had been through an implosion two years before we got there. And there was still a lot of hard feelings um, when we arrived, even though a lot of healing had taken place. And the interim pastor had done a phenomenal job. Um, As we came together one Sunday evening, and of course the Sunday evening crowd was, you know, the deacons and the leadership who'd been there through stuff. And and I used an idea that, that my uncle had said he had done with one of the churches he was at. And so I gave them all a piece of paper, and you should have received a piece of paper tonight. And what I've wanted them to write on the piece of paper and what I want you to write on the piece of paper tonight, and even if you're not a member here or there's something in your life, this can apply to anybody On the piece of paper, I want you to write maybe the name of a person that you need to forgive. They may be alive. They may be dead. They may be part of your life now. They may not be part of your life now. But on the piece of paper, write the name of the person that you need to forgive. Now, that's hard to do. But remember, forgiveness doesn't make the other person right. It sets you free. Because if you harbor that resentment and that unforgiveness, it eats at you. But if you can let it go, it's amazing. One of the most powerful days in the prison class was last semester, Jean, that you, you weren't there for I was teaching through Philemon, which is all about forgiveness. And I talked about tell the same lesson to those guys, and I said, Guys, you gotta you gotta forgive. And these grown tattooed men, tears in their eyes, Jean, were like, I can't do that. I'm here because somebody snitched on me. You know it. I'm here because of that. My buddy got off. He's already out. I've got ten more years because he took a deal to put me under. I can't forgive that. But the tears meant they knew they had to. And we've got to do that too. We've got to forgive. So maybe there's a name of a person you need to forgive. Or maybe... Maybe there's just something you need to put on there that you just need to let go. It might be a preference. It might be something you think is what needs to be. But you need to release it so that God can be free to move in a new way. When we did this at Pineville 11 years ago now, it was a sweet time. Having heard all the stories as I arrived, I could have probably guessed the names that were on the pieces of paper that were put there. But what was important is the people put the name there. So what I want you to do is just we're going to have a time of quiet and for you to just write that name on there. And then after you've done that, pray and give that name to God or give that issue to God or give whatever to God. Crumple it up. And then come, put it down here at the altar. Nobody's going to go back and read that stuff. We'll pick it up after the service. It's going to be thrown away. But that's a picture of you saying, I'm letting it go. So we got to let it go. Let me pray. Lord, we come tonight and we just pray that you will speak to our hearts. You'll open our hearts. And you'll help us to be set free tonight. So that we can move forward. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just take a moment there. Think through those issues. And as as you feel led, come and bring that and lay it here at the altar. And then I'll lead us through the rest of the invitation. Love how some of you came and you just tossed it down there. And what that is, is that's giving that to God. And you're saying, God, that it's done. I'm giving it, it's done. Throwing away. Take it, heal it, we're moving forward. And so you've brought it and you've laid it at the altar, and you'll leave here without it. And you'll be free. To move forward. And God can honor that in an amazing way. I feel like I just want to lead us in a, a song to complete, Tim, if that's okay. If there's another decision that needs to be made, just catch one of us at the end. But there's a song, and I don't know if I was ever singing it here. Um, probably did. But it's a little song that just talks about peace. And it's one that I do quite often, just at the end of a sermon. Acapella from time to time in Pineville because when we went there, we needed peace. And we all need the peace of God in our lives, don't we? It's just an old chorus, and it goes like this. It says, Peace, peace,
1: wonderful peace coming down from the Father above. Sweep over my spirit forever, I pray, in fathomless billows
0: of love. Anybody know that? It's a precious, precious song. Kick it in there, Jerry, with me. Here we go. Peace,
1: peace.
0: Wonderful
1: peace coming down from the father above sweep.